as you are turning in your Bible or on your Bible app or in your bulletin to Ephesians chapter 1, we will continue walking through Ephesians together. And as you're doing that, I'm thinking this morning about ghosts and haunted houses. What? Pastor, my children are here. What are you... Well, stay with me for a second. Someone on a TV news show this week um, was asked uh, if he would ever buy a house that was rumored to be haunted. And his answer was, yeah, because I wouldn't mind having an encounter with a ghost because then I'd know that something exists beyond us. Very interesting. Paul has a better way of figuring this out. Um, Good news, you don't have to buy a haunted house in order to know that there's something beyond us. The Apostle Paul had no doubt that there was an invisible spiritual realm beyond what we experience with our five senses. And in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he uses this phrase, heavenly places, five times. And he uses it to refer to a a spiritual realm that exists in addition to the physical realm. So together, these two realms add up to one reality. We've already seen in chapter 1, verse 3, that the church is blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he said. We'll see soon in verse 20 of chapter 1. Um, Paul tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In chapter 2, we're going to learn that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In chapter 3, Paul will tell us that there are spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, watching God's plan unfold. And then in chapter 6, we're going to learn that some of those spiritual rulers and authorities oppose God and oppose his people and oppose his plan. They're what uh, what Paul calls spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So again, you don't have to buy a haunted house to find out that there's something that exists beyond the physical world that we experience The Bible tells us that there are two realms that make up one reality. And in our passage today, Paul calls those two realms heaven and earth. So with that background, uh, let's ask ourselves, so so what? What Why does that matter? Um, And we'll see in a moment that God has a plan for heaven and earth. And that plan is all wrapped up in Jesus. So let's stand together. And hear the word of the God who loves his church from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and I'll pray. <coughs> Lord, I, I want to pray this morning as, as I pray for the preaching of your word, I also uh, want to pray for some of our people uh, who are not here with us this morning, uh, for the Ryans as they um, are with Tom's mom. Tom, having just lost his dad a few weeks ago, is now uh, with her as she is at death's door. We pray for them and ask that you would have mercy on her, have mercy on them, strengthen them. And then we also pray for uh, Johnny Mac McGee today who lost his dad this week and ask that you would comfort him in his grief, he and his mom and his sister and their family, um, and give them safe travel when they go. Um, so we ask your help for them, your mercy on them, and we ask for your help for us today as we talk about life and death matters, um, that you have given Paul to tell us this morning. Help us to see those things and help us to embrace Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, I want to share a short parable with you this morning. This is not one of Jesus's parables, but a parable written, oh, probably in the last 30 years by a, a writer, a Christian writer. Uh, here, here's the parable. It's brief. And here is a parable of life for you to ponder on, he says. A group of tourists is sitting in a bus that is passing through gorgeously beautiful country. Lakes and mountains and green fields and rivers. But the shades of the bus are pulled down. They do not have the slightest idea of what lies beyond the windows of the bus. And so, all the time of their journey is spent in squabbling over who will have the seat of honor on the bus, who will be well considered, who will be applauded. And so they remain until the journey's end. The parable of the bus. The passengers are all there, shades are pulled down, they can't see anything outside. So they spend all of their time trying to find a way to get the best seat on the bus. Paul knew that the Christians, the saints in Ephesus, used to live just that way. They were ignorant of any reality outside the bus. So they worked with all their heart and mind and strength to sit in what they thought would be the best seat on the bus. If this is all there is, just, in, just us inside this bus, then I'm going to do what I can to make life work in here. I'm going to arrange my life so that I get what I think is the best seat on the bus. Now, in Ephesus, as we've talked about, that, that might have meant that they would seek the seat of honor, applause, and status through education or sport or the arts or 
Perhaps success in business or amassing wealth would get them a better seat on the bus. Maybe aligning themselves with a political power would secure their spot. Or it might mean that they revolve their life around the goddess Artemis. Maybe being a religious person will get me the best seat on the bus. And so we're not all that much unlike the Ephesians. And our world is not that much unlike Ephesus. But take a closer look at what living that way has done for us. Everything inside the bus is a mess. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone lives for me first. And what happens then is that individuals and families and countries and political parties and people groups all live for the best seat on the bus and it divides it divides. It divides people from God. It divides people from other people. It divides husbands and wives and parents and children, siblings from siblings. It divides people groups from other people groups. It divides men from women. It divides people of one skin color from those of another skin color. It divides rich from poor, right from left, nation from nation, generation from generation, neighbor from neighbor. The division spreads. It divides people from other created things. We hear of death and disease and the destruction of natural resources this week. Uh, these two deaths that I just prayed about and um, grieving this week for some friends who, whose son and daughter-in-law miscarried twins. So even our relationship with with creation is broken and divided and alienated. And then it even divides us from our own selves. We have a loss of identity, belonging, and purpose. We have broken minds and hearts. Life inside the bus with the shades down is full of division. It's disconnected, it's disintegrated, it's disordered, it's disjointed. It's dislocated. And Paul is concerned that the Christians in Ephesus will be wooed back into thinking and living inside the bus as if there's nothing outside the bus. He's concerned that they're going to be drawn back into this divided, alienated, separated kind of life. He's going to say later in chapter 4, listen to this. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you... Christians must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. The shades are pulled down. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. He's concerned that they're going to begin to live inside the bus with the shades down. That's not, how they used, that's not how they were redeemed to live. So, here in the beginning of this letter, here in verses 7 to 10, Paul wants to remind the Ephesian Christians that God has pulled their shades up so that they can live inside the bus as people who can see what's outside the bus. And so this morning I want to ask and answer three questions. The first two will take the longest. The last one is brief. 
The first question is, what's outside the bus that God has made known to his church? What's out there? Second is, how did he make it known to us? How how are we able to see it? And the third question, I'll, I'll briefly at the end want to begin to answer the question, now that we can see outside the bus, what difference does it make for how we live inside the bus? Ultimately, the whole book of Ephesians is going to answer that question. So first, what's outside the bus, outside these windows that God has made known to us, to his church? He tells us in verses 8 through 10, Paul says that God lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Mystery. Mystery. Uh, One commentator said that in the Bible... In biblical language, a mystery is something that formerly was unknown, but is now revealed. Formerly, the shades were pulled down, but now they're lifted, and you can see it. There was a reality outside the windows of the bus that was not not known because the shades were pulled down. But now, God has given his people wisdom and insight, making known to us something that was there all along, but that was not fully known or understood. So what was outside the bus? Windows. What was it that God made known? Verse 9 says, God made known his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, that's a lot of words. (laughs) Let me try to help us. If you could lift the shades and see the glorious, beautiful awesome reality outside the bus, you would see God's will. You'd see what God has been up to since before time began. You would see God's plan. But before we look at the plan, before we get there, Paul wants us to know a few things about this plan. First, Paul wants us to know that it's a plan that pleases God. He says that it's according to his purpose, that That word purpose literally means it's according to his good pleasure. It pleased him. Listen, Chick-fil-A may have invented the chicken sandwich, but they were not the first to say, my pleasure. (laughs) When God set forth this plan in Christ before the foundations of the earth, he in essence was saying, it's my pleasure to do this. It delights my heart to do this. It comes from my heart. It's my pleasing purpose. So Paul wants us to know that about this plan, that that God is excited about it. What else does he want us to know about it? He wants us to know that it's a plan that only comes through Jesus. He said it's it's a purpose, a plan which he set forth in Christ. This is not something that someone else can make happen. It's a plan so grand in its scope and so glorious in its beauty and so gracious in its kindness that only God could do it. So this plan is set forth through Jesus alone. And we'll talk more about how that is in a minute. But there's one thing more Paul wants you to know about this plan before he tells us what it is. 
He says it's a plan whose time has come. Verse 10, he says, it's a plan for the fullness of time. The time has come because Jesus has come. Jesus said it himself in Mark 1.15. He said, the time is fulfilled. Or another way to say it is, time's up. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. And then Paul uses the same phrase, fullness of time, over in Galatians 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The same themes that he's been talking about in chapter 1. The time has come for this plan because Jesus has come to accomplish it through his incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation. And he who began this good work will complete it until the day he comes again. So it's a plan whose time has come, Paul said. And so now, okay, so what is this plan? And we've built up the anticipation. What is the plan outside the bus windows that God has made known? Verse 10, it's a plan to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Things in those two realms of reality will be united in Christ. If all you see is what's inside the bus, then you see everyone and everything divided, disconnected, disintegrated, disordered, disjointed, dislocated. But the plan that God has revealed in Jesus is that through Jesus, he will undo all of that and unite all things again under Jesus. That word unite, uh, some translations call it uh, sum up. It really means to kind of pull everything back up under the head who is Christ. And now you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait. Unite all things in Jesus. Isn't that universalism? Are you saying, is Paul saying that everyone will be saved in the end? Is this how he unites all things in him? No. We know from the rest of Scripture that that's not what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying that everything will be put back right in the end. One commentator described it well, and and, and I want to read it because I think it's very clear and helpful. He says, Paul is not teaching universalism, that everybody will be saved in the end. He said, it is the teaching, rather, that all things will be subjected to Christ... Some willingly, as those who have been redeemed by Jesus, joyfully exult in his rule. Some will be subjected to Christ unwillingly, as evil is nevertheless restrained. And all are forced to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of all. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So, what is this vision of Jesus uniting of God uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. Again, I get some help from some, some friends. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this beautifully. Listen to how he describes this plan of God. He says, The perfect harmony that will be restored will be harmony in people 
and between people. Harmony on the earth and in the brute creation. Harmony in heaven and all under this blessed Lord Jesus Christ who will be the head of all. Everything will again be united in him. And wonder of wonders, marvelous beyond compare, when all this happens, it will never be undone again. He says, all will be reunited in him to all eternity. That is the message. That is God's plan. That is the mystery which has been revealed unto us, he says. These things are so marvelous that you will never hear anything greater either in this world or the world to come. That's what is outside the bus. That's what God is up to. No matter how alienated from God or from one another or from creation, everything seems to be inside the bus. God's plan is in motion in Jesus to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And this, friends, is why it's our desire at Mountain Fellowship to share God's deep gladness in renewing all things. If that plan is God's good pleasure, we want it to be our good pleasure. And so now my second question is, now that we know what the plan is, now that we know what's outside the bus, how does he make this plan known to us? How does God pull the shades up so that we can see it? Paul tells us that the wisdom and insight to know his plan was a gift of God's lavish grace. But that gift came packaged along with another gift. The gift of the revelation of what God is doing in his world, in his universe, came packaged with the gift of redemption in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of the will. Do you see it? Out of the superabounding lavish overflow of his grace, God redeems that he has chosen to adopt as his children through the blood of Jesus. And to those whom God redeems through Jesus, he also reveals his plan to renew all things in Jesus. So if you're redeemed through Jesus, you get the shades pulled up so that God reveals to you what he plans to do in Jesus, not just for you, but for the entire cosmos. So we have to ask, what is redemption? Redemption is not a word we, we use very often. The word Paul is using literally means to buy back a slave by paying a ransom price. And for Paul, it came from the two worlds he knew best, from his Hebrew heritage and from his uh, Greco-Roman culture. Um, As a Hebrew, Paul remembered the story of the Exodus. And he would remember the price of blood that was paid, the blood of a spotless lamb that was paid to free God's people from their slavery to the gods of Egypt, to become one, to, to become who they were made to be, servants of the true and living God. And so redemption is a price of blood paid for the redemption 
of people. But in his Greco-Roman culture, the, the world he lived in, that, that word was also used, that redemption word. It was a little different. So someone, let's say someone in your family uh, incurred debt to someone else, a debt that was beyond what they could pay. You, you had the option of selling yourself into servitude and slavery to that person until the debt was paid off. Well, if your family member had done that because of their own uh, debt, you could uh, redeem them. You could pay the debt for them and free them from slavery. But one of the ways that they did this, Don Carson says that they would pay the debt through the temple somehow. And so using the, the temple and the temple priests, and we're, not talk, we're talking about temples of idols here, not God's temple. You would pay the price through the temple, and therefore what that meant is you may be free from your debt, but now you're a slave to this God. And so Paul has these images in his mind when he's thinking of redemption, a price pr- paid to free us from a debt from slavery, from bondage. Um, there was a time when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, when our home was robbed and all of my most prized possessions were taken. Uh, my guitar, my television, my uh, Commodore 64 computer, personal computer. Huh? They, they were mine. And I lost them. They were gone. So the police did a little searching. And they found some of those items in a local pawn shop. Now, I in my foolishness as just a 17-year-old, I thought, well, then we sh- those people should just give it back to us. It's mine. But nope. My father had to pay to get my stuff back. It's called redeeming something that has been pawned. That's probably one of the ways that we use that word now. Um, This is what Jesus has done by shedding his blood on the cross. He's paid the ransom for those who are enslaved and in debt to their sin and the death death penalty that they owe. And if he has redeemed you, then he owns you twice. He owned you, he lost you, and he bought you back. And if he owns you, now the purpose and plan of his heart has become the purpose and plan of your life. And in order for the shades to come up so that you can see God's heart to renew all things. He first has to redeem your heart. Remember what I told you Paul said in Ephesians 4. They were darkened in their understanding. The shades were down. They were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We're the ones who have pulled the shades down by our sin and by separating ourselves, alienating, alienating ourselves from God. 
And since the alienation and disintegration that we now experience with God and within ourselves and between one another and with all things in heaven and on earth, since that alienation and disintegration began with the disobedience of the first Adam at a tree, Paul is saying that now the reconciliation between God and people and between ourselves and others and the reintegration within ourselves and of all things will come through Jesus, the second Adam, because of his obedience on a tree, shedding his blood for the renewal of all things which begins with us. And so now, just for a moment... I want us to answer the third question, just to begin to, because like I said, the whole book of Ephesians will tell us how we live with this vision outside the bus, how we live inside the bus with this vision outside. It's what the whole book is about. So in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is going to continue over and over again to point us to the windows of the bus and say, look, this is what God is up to in his universe. He's working out his plan to renew all things in Jesus by first redeeming his people through Jesus. This is what God is doing, and this is who you are, church. That's chapters 1 through 3. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will begin to show us how to live inside the bus as redeemed sinners who have their eyes fixed on what God has revealed he is doing through Jesus outside the bus. And we begin to be the answer to the prayer Jesus told us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mountain Fellowship, the whole book of Ephesians is going to show us how we can continue to share in God's deep gladness to renew all things, starting with us. And so here's the question that I want you to answer for yourself this morning. If the renewal of all things begins with the redemption of people through Jesus, then here's my question. Is Jesus your redeemer? Is he your redeemer? Do you believe and stake your life on this, that Jesus Christ has actually shed his blood for you to buy you back for himself? Paul said that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sin. Do you believe that your sin against God alienated you from the life of God? Do you believe that your sin has alienated you from others? That your sin has disintegrated yourself? Do you believe that you're responsible for your hard heart? Do you admit that you've been blind to God's plan to rescue you through Jesus? And will you right now trust that your freedom from bondage to death and decay has been bought? It's been paid. It's been bought at a tremendous price, at the price of nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or let's take it a step further. Will you now confess that this Jesus who shed his blood for you is your God? 
That's the question we all have to ask and answer this morning. But I have good news for you. He is more willing to forgive you than you are willing to ask for forgiveness. It's his great gladness to show you his plan to redeem you and to renew you and then to invite you into his plan to unite everything in heaven and earth under Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, I, I ask that this morning you would help us answer that question. Are we staking our life on Jesus as the ransom to redeem us from our slavery to sin and self? And for, for those of us who answer, well, yes, and I, I've said that for years. I, I've believed that for, for me now for 44 years. It doesn't matter if I believed it 44 years ago. Do I trust it now? Do I believe it now? But, Father, there may be some in this room and and even young ones like me who, when I was 10 years old, heard this message for the first time and embraced it for the first time. There may be some here this morning who need to come to you and say, Jesus, I... I accept your price you paid by your blood on the cross to free me from my sin. And now I'm yours. And I want your purpose and your plan for my life to be my purpose and my plan for my life. Because that's what will give me great gladness. So Lord, would you do that in each of us this morning, we ask. Even as we look at this table and talk about the price that was paid for our redemption in the body and blood of Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.